I was going to a Porcupine Tree concert in Los Angeles, and I had arrived early. And I always try to sneak backstage. This is one of my weird quirks to do. And so I was walking backstage, and as the door opened, Tony Levin, a famous bass player, was coming out. And we literally just bumped into each other. And, you know, you have those moments in life, John, where you just go, okay, am I prepared for this? And if you better be, because here I am face-to-face with Tony Levin, who was one of my heroes. I, you know, grown up with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. And, and so I said, this is my chance. And I just, I said, Tony, my name is Scott from Lazy Bones Recordings. I produce indie bands. I have a DVD of all my stuff in my car. I'd like to give it to you. If you hate it, I'll never hear from you again, but I know what kind of record we could do together. And can I give you the DVD? And if you like it, then you give me a call. If you don't, I'm sorry for bothering you. Yeah, sure. Welcome to a conversation with John Philpin. Each week, John cuts through the noise and fills your ears with interviews, stories, and most importantly, clarity. Clarity in our ever-changing and shifting world to put people first. Over to you, John. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are on this planet of ours. What you just heard is just one of the ways that music drummer, music producer and label owner Scott Shaw has bent the universe. You'll have to listen to the podcast to see what happened next and listen a bit further to discover that this was not just a one-off. He did it again. If you are into great music, the names of the people that Scott works with and just rattles off will fill your ears with delight. But this is not just a podcast about music. I particularly reached out to Scott because I know his story. I know what he's done, how he's been true to himself his entire life. He's followed his passion and become a success on his own terms. Scott's story is a magical tale of following your passion, of rejecting that which doesn't sit well with you and sticking to your dreams. And if that's not relevant to people first, I don't know what is. It works. It worked. But there's more. The podcast is a few minutes longer than usual. Stick with it until the end for an Easter egg of awesome proportions. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Scott Shaw. Scott, I have known for many, many years. Um, We've never met, curiously enough. He's always been in a different place to me. Currently, I'm in a place where he used to be, and I used to be in a place that he used to be. (laughs) These these days, he's in Melbourne. Um, He's still doing the same thing, which is why I wanted to reach out to him and say hello and get him on the podcast and I think you'll understand why in a moment. But anyway, for a moment, Scott, welcome aboard. Hey, John. What's going on, man? Everything's going on, my friend. And it's really exciting to get you on the end here. It's uh, it, This is going to be fun. And again, for people that follow this in fact, for people that know me, they'll know that I have a certain penchant for uh, music. And if people have been tracking the podcast, you'll recognize that there's a musical Easter egg in every single podcast I've released regardless of whether we talk about music. But today is absolutely about music because Scott is a music producer, a music engineer, a music performer. He runs his life with music. And um, Scott, just to start, just to level set some of the listeners here, a little bit about your early days, how you come to be doing the job that I think most people would bite your arm off for. Well, uh, 
I've always been a drummer. So I started playing the drums at age 11. And, uh, you know, music got me through my early childhood. I used to go to all the concerts. Sometimes I'd go by myself. I'd be 12 years old at the LA Forum, uh, watching Zeppelin or Black Sabbath and, and just did that through my youth. And then in college, I was in a band and then started to kind of manage bands and produce. And it's just been a lifelong thing for me. How old were you when you did your first band management gig? You know, I think I was like, well, actually, I had a high school band, so I must have been 16. And I'd play the drums and I'd call, you know, all the people that were doing the parties and do the bookings. And after college, Tried real estate for a second and did well in it, but, you know, I actually started having panic attacks. Doing well in real estate going, this is not what I want to do. So uh, I actually got got out of that and just started a company called Lazy Bones Recordings. Lazy Bones is how old now then? Oh, my gosh. Like 25 years old. 25 yeah, years old. Yeah. <laughs> Music's just been my, my pretty much entire existence. And, uh, you know, Lazy Bones was started as, as a production company. And uh, I knew that I had melodies that were in my head all the time. But I also didn't really want to be a performer any longer. I wanted to produce and discover artists. Uh, so Lazy Bones was actually started off my frustration with being involved in the major labels when I would bring bands to them. And I just saw how inept these corporations were and how they just were not set up to foster the artists. It wasn't the seventies where you'd be able to develop an artist and, and you'd be able to be able to do two or three records before, you know, they dropped you, you have a chance to develop. It was just, um, it was just completely about accounting and lawyers and, and they just actually, the people that I met in, in, in most of the labels actually despise the artists, believe it or not. And so I said, you know, I don't, I don't need this and it's not conducive to creativity and what I want to do. So that, so Lazy Bones was, was born of that frustration. And if I says this was in Seattle, so at some point you left LA and went to Seattle? Yeah, we left LA, we went to Seattle and we were in Seattle during just the heyday, the perfect time where you would go and see Nirvana um, with 30 people at a in-store or see Pearl Jam at the Crocodile Cafe, which was a small club. So we just, we lived through that and saw, you know, and, and that was really indie, wasn't it? I mean, you look at Sub Pop and, and, and that, so that kind of reaffirmed what I, what I was doing. Who was your first artist on Lazy Bones? Actually, believe it or not, my first artist was um, a rap project that I did. Um, and I was a rapper with, with a friend of mine called B. Chestnut. And that really cut my teeth on running the label. And I was the artist and I was also the label person and had a partner. And I just, that's when I really realized I don't want to be an artist anymore. I want to, you know, I want to be a producer behind the scenes. And then the second band we had was a band called Nero's Rome, which was in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they were just, they were phenomenal. And they played Lollapalooza and, and did really well. And so from that point on, I just would find bands and um, produce their records and really spend time on the recording and, and then release it. 
so, so you're the A and R man right through to the very end. I mean, you 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 literally are a, a one man band, shall we say? Yeah, sort of. You know. <laughs> yeah. Now, and and I know some of your old catalog, and I've I've you know got quite a few of the stuff that you've produced from the old days. Um, but that's not what you produce these days. You you've moved what I call toward. Well, I know in your heart you've always been on the progressive side of life. Progressive is now where you're at, um, and you know, just rattle off some of the names of people that you work with, because I want to come back to that at how you're doing all this, because I think it's quite magical. I first started out producing hip hop and hard rock and singer songwriters, and that catalog was purchased by BMG and Sony. Um, I think about three or four years ago, but just prior to that, I was going to a Porcupine Tree concert in Los Angeles and I had arrived early and I always try to sneak backstage. This is one of my weird quirks to do. And so I was walking backstage and as the door opened, Tony Levin, a famous bass player was coming out and we literally just bumped into each other. And you know, you have those moments in life, John, where you just go, okay, am I prepared for this? And if you better be, because here I am, face-to-face with Tony Levin, who was one of my heroes. I, you know, grown up with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. And, and so I said, this is my chance. And I just, I said, Tony, my name is Scott from Lazy Bones Recordings. I produce indie bands. I have a DVD of all my stuff in my car. I'd like to give it to you. If you hate it, I'll never hear from you again, but I know what kind of record we could do together. And can I give you the DVD? And if you like it, then you give me a call. If you don't, I'm sorry for bothering you. And he's like, yeah, sure. So I ran in my wow. car and, and gave him the DVD and never expected, you know, to hear from him. And he was opening, his band was opening for Porcupine Tree. And I remember... Tony Levin was opening for Porcupine Tree? Tony Levin and his band were opening for Porcupine Tree. Oh, which which band was that one? Stickman. No, Tony Levin band. It was actually a Tony band. Levin band. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is before wow. Stick, this is before Stickman. Um, yeah. And sorry for this long story, but it was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, but you know, I remember you know when I would see King Crimson at the Forum or a small club, I would I would be sitting on the stage, you know, leaning against the stage, and I was this young kid, and I would, I remember John just looking up at Tony Levin, saying to myself, "I'm going to work with him one day." I must have been 13, 14 years old. So I, you know, saw the show and just put it out of my mind. I said, he's not going to call me. It's Tony Levin. Come on. Two days later, I get this call. He's like, I listened to all your songs. What do you have in mind? I really like what you're doing. I really like your production. Um, you know, tell me more about yourself. So I told him that I was behind a lot of these records that I would take an artist from its inception and, my specialty was really finding the melody and finding the song and bringing out the best of an artist. And he said, well, I have this idea of doing this, this record with my stick, featuring my stick. And um, I want to call it stick man. And so we should talk about that. And that's how it started. We basically went to New York. We worked together in the pre-production and, uh, that's how I got into Prague. So I really owe my career in that world to Tony Levin because once we did this record, and it was pretty groundbreaking at the time, um, we loved working together. And so he, you know, I kind of attached my name to his and he started telling people about me. Yep. And so I really owe so much to him. 
Yeah. The, the, it's fascinating. Also, just for listeners, um, if you don't know the name Levin, so Scott quickly passed through. But but Peter Gabriel, if you watch a Peter Gabriel live concert, the bald headed guy playing the bass or the stick, that's Tony Levin. If you watch a King Crimson album, uh, King Crimson video, and you see that line of drums with the line up at the back, there's a bald headed guy in the middle of the stage. That's Tony Levin. That's the level of who he is. And that is a brilliant, brilliant story. So Keith, and, and to, I hadn't realized it was the first Stickman album that you did either. So, 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 so that led on to great things. So at this point, you were already producing. You'd already said, I'm not going to work for the man. I hate the way that it goes. I'm going to give that people first, as I would call it, sort of service, if you will, to the musicians. Tony loves what you do. And, and, and then you started getting, did, did, he presumably fed through to you some of the people that you then ended up working with. Well, the next, the next project, so after we finished Stickman, he said, what do you want to do? What do you want to do next? And I said, well, I've always had this concept, not that I invented it, of course, I didn't, but I, I thought I did in my head because I hadn't really known about other records like that, but I wanted to do a trio project. I wanted to do a set of trio projects. And I wanted to call them by their name, Levin dot, 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 dot. Um, and he said, well, who do you want to work with? And I said, well, my favorite band in the whole world is Yes. I mean, that's just my first, second, third favorite band. And uh, I'd like to work with Alan White. Now, here's another story, John. So I spent my formative years in Malibu. My friend lived in a canyon. I was a yes, fanatic, psycho freak. Down the canyon, right across from my friend's deck, lived Alan White, the drummer for Yes. I used to sit on my friend's, literally, I would sit on my friend's deck for hours listening to Alan rehearse in his garage. And I would just, I got, I, this was a dream for me. And I never got to meet Alan then. But again, I would say to myself, one day I'm going to work with Alan White. I don't know if you follow the thing called The Secret or kind of segue in a little bit. But the secret is if you tell yourself something enough and you really believe it, it'll come true. Yeah, the, the, the whole holding a visualization. In fact, I was talking to Frederick the, on the podcast I was referencing earlier on, this idea of visualize, visualizing where you want to be. And as you say, it then manifests itself. You, you're bending the universe, as Steve Jobs used to say. So, yes, it's something I try to do, but uh, you obviously are a master at it. Yeah, but I, ha- I really had that kind of thought with both Alan and with Tony. So I said, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to work with Alan. He goes, well, I don't know Alan. I played with, I played with Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe. So I didn't work with that yes camp. I said, well, I'll reach out to him. So remember MySpace, days of MySpace. I wrote Alan um, a, a MySpace message, and he wrote me back. I'd love to. I've always wanted to work with Tony. Who are you? I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, again, Mr. Levin works his wonders. And uh, I ended up going to Seattle, and, uh, you know, I was nervous as hell. And I'm, I'm, I'm at Alan's van moving his drums out with him, and I'm just going, dude, i got to tell you this fucking story, man. Oh, can I cuss on this? Apparently, so it's a podcast. <laughs> I go, dude, i got to tell you this story, Alan. It's like, you know, do you remember when you moved, lived in Malibu? He's like, yeah, that was years ago. What about it? I said, I told him. And he's like, oh, that's crazy. So, 
So we did Levin Torn White. And uh, David Torn was a really, in, or is a very inventive guitarist that had worked with Tony in a band with Bill Bruford. So we finished that, uh, the drums and the bass, and Tony's the only guy that could ever figure out this, this stuff is David Torn. So we did that. So that was Levin Torn White. And that segued into Levin Minimum Rudis. So uh, we did two of those. And then I met through Levin Minimum Rudis, Marco Miniman and I had a pretty good relationship. And so I ended up producing uh, three of Marco's solo records. So it just kind of segued from there. Well, again, it's connections and who you know, and as you build a catalog of really perfectly wonderful stuff, by the way, then the people just have trust in you and they say, call up Scott, he'll, he'll, he'll make it so. And again, just uh, picking up on things like Miniman and, uh, and uh, uh, Rudess, I mean, at what point have I, why should I talk about it? You talk about them. Tell, tell the listeners about those guys because they are awesome. And touch on Guthrie on your way through as well. <laughs> Marco is, uh, I would probably say Marco's probably the, musically the most talented person I've ever come across. He's, a, as you know, just an insane drummer. But also he's a really incredible guitarist, bass player, um, keyboardist. And the guy writes like one song a day. I mean, you can't keep up with him. You just can't. And um, he had done, I think he had done like 12 solo records before we had met. And he'd self-produced them all. And he said, you're the only guy I trust to produce a record for me. So we did a record called Eeps, which was, you know, incredible. And to work with someone, you know, it, sometimes I have to pinch myself. And I'm always nervous working with these people because who am I? I mean, these guys are just... They're giants, and I'm just a guy. And uh, but it seems to work out. And I think one of the things that I Tony Levin once said this to me, and I was really actually my feelings are really hurt. But he didn't mean it as a criticism. We were working on st Stickman, and he said, "You know, Scott." He goes, "You'll send me some stuff sometimes." He goes, "And I'm I'm Berkeley educated. I read. I know theory. I." you know, know everything about music and you'll send me some tracks sometimes. And I'll say to myself, what the fuck is going on in this guy's mind? I mean, these chords should not go together, but they do. And he said, you come from the street, you have no musical education, but everything you do is from your ear. And don't ever go to college. Don't ever go to study music theory because it'll destroy you. I was so offended and just like, oh, my God, Tony Levin's cutting me down. But I think what he was trying to say is that maybe one of the reasons I work well with these, these guys that are so schooled and so technical is I don't buy into that, man. I, that's not how I work. So I try to bring it into the street, try to bring it into, I don't care if this chord on paper does, shouldn't work with this chord or this bass riff shouldn't work with this keyboard. I don't care if it sounds interesting and it sounds good. That's what I'll bring to the table. And, and, and really, I mean, if you sort of, you know, into other disciplines of music, um, there are plenty of people of the street that sort of create those chords. I mean, you know, take Mr. Fripp. He's not exactly from the streets, but at the same time, I mean, he, he plays chords that in anybody else's hands, you would freak out. So th this ability to, cross over that theory 
I remember many, many years ago, remember the classical guitarist John Williams? Sure. And he got out of kind of classical and he had a little experiment with a band called Sky with some musicians around him. His break into rock, it was appalling. It was, it was licorice stuff. I, I didn't like it at all. But but part of the problem was he couldn't free himself up of his classical training. He couldn't let go in the way that a Fripp could. You know, because Williams was a really, really good guitarist, but it was it was that formality that he couldn't break out of. So no, I think massive kudos and massive compliments from uh, from Tony on that one. So so I want to reverse back a little bit and you sort of you followed this journey, you didn't work. You're also doing this in a very different way. So so we've just lived through 2020 and and it looks like we're continuing in 2021 to be living the same way, which is working from home, working virtually, not going to an office. You watch YouTube videos of people performing at home and all coming together. Virtual musicians have been discovered overnight. But that's what you do. That, that I think, is how you've made your living, that sort of those three guys don't all turn up at the same time. So tell me a little bit about how you got into that, how that worked. And, and to me, from little I know, I mean, I know it goes on, but I, I think the only person I'm aware of, and again, I'm not a musician, I'm not in the industry, that, that really does that. Everybody else seems to have these giant studios with their mixing desks and all the performers in there. Talk a little bit about that, how that came to be. Well, again, it was just sort of not being interested in living in the epicenters of where the industry was, because I have no interest in the industry, the music industry. It has just, there's no interest on any, I didn't get into this to be an A&R weasel or to be a publicist, or I do that because I have to, I, I did this because I love music and I want to create meaningful records. I want to work with people I respect. So we sort of purposely, my wife and I don't have kids, so we sort of purposely can go anywhere we wanted to. And so I think some people say, dude, are you like trying to like move as far away from the epicenters of music as possible? Is that your goal? And I say, yes, not on purpose. See, so we went to Hawaii after Seattle and course you lived in Maui I lived in the big island and uh, as long as there was internet and I could do projects um, virtually we we were able to do it we couldn't move to a place that didn't have great internet that's really the bottom line Um, but I met a great band in Hawaii produced them and then um, when we saw the direction that the U.S. was heading uh, way back you know around 9-11 um, we just said, we don't want to kind of be a part of this anymore. We could live somewhere else and then took a trip to New Zealand and, uh, made sure they had decent internet, uh, and relocated there. And, and interesting that, that in your move to New Zealand, which is of itself on the edge of the world, even then you avoided the Auckland and the Wellington and lived on the edge of New Zealand. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much room, I think somebody once said, and you're obviously living that particular dream. Well, my mom says, Scott, is next are you going to Antarctica? Because that is the furthest continent from the United States. I said, I'd love to. I love the cold. I'm sure. But no internet there, so I can't do it. 
Well, if you join the military, you probably find there's a good intent. They've got, they got some good uplinks, I believe. Right, right. So, and then you left New Zealand and went to Melbourne. And then we we got our citizenship after eight years in New Zealand and took a trip to Australia. Because really, frankly, New Zealand was a little bit small for us, especially where we were in the provincial um, Taranaki region. So it was a little bit small for us. And so we took a trip to Melbourne and uh, got our citizenship as I said, in, in New Zealand, that allowed us to move to Australia without any hassle. And so we've been here five years and love it. I love it. And still operating in this, in this virtual world, which, um, again, is just something which I'm, I, I love. So, so in, in Melbourne for five years, um, has, have you got anything on the books ready to be doing with one of these guys again? Is a minimum going to appear again soon or Tony going to do something? In my dealings with all the Prague guys, I met a guy named Mike Keneally. And Mike Keneally has been with Zappa and, and Joe Satriani and Devin Townsend, just a, a great guy. And again, another just incredible artist. I think I read somewhere that Keneally, it was the, um, was he the special effects guitarist for Zappa or something like that? I mean, he, he was somebody who obviously, if you can get Zappa excited about your guitar playing, then he obviously <laughs> knows what he's doing. It was like Zappa's like right-hand guy. He was his second guitarist, yeah. so... Yeah, Mike goes yeah. way back. But so when Marco Minman was with Satriani, they toured and came to Auckland. And I went up to, to Auckland to see Marco with Satriani and Mike Keneally was in the band. And I actually ended up sitting next to him during a lunch. And we really hit it off personally. And I said, man, we should do something together. He's like, yeah, absolutely. And we just kept talking. And finally, I had some, some tracks I had put together. And this band name that I was dying to use called Mankind's Final Traffic Jam. I just had to use it. And so I sent Mike these tracks and this with this band name said, but if you like this stuff, we have to use this name. And he liked it. So we 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 shortened the band's name to MFTJ and we've just finished our second album. And I decided after that album, which just came out. I decided that I would like to kind of maybe offer my services to bands outside of the lazy bones umbrella. So I don't have to be the label weasel. I'd like to just produce and move on to the next project. So I started um, a website called uh, Scott Shore, Scott-Shore, S-C-H-O-R-R.com. And that's kind of offering my services to, to other bands that don't have to be signed to lazy bones that might excite me and might be interested in working with me. So that's kind of a, cleared my schedule and so we'll see what happens. But uh, for the first time in a hundred years, I don't have a project set. So no project. And, and it's not that you're putting lazy bones on ice, but you're just thinking you've now got a certain amount of chops and recognition that maybe Stephen Wilson might call, for example. Oh my God. Can you imagine what a dream that would be? <laughs> yeah. So, so um Interesting. So, so the new album we got out, which I have, which I've listened to, and um, listeners will will come back to it again at the end of this because uh, Scott is going to choose his favorite track from that album, which we're going to sort of add to the end of this podcast for you to get a shape of what it sounds like. But um, which is your favorite track off that album, and why? Probably the song, which is the first one on the record called "What Wally Thinks," and probably because I did a really demented video. So I've been doing a lot of video work. So visually, I like I like the song. Um, when I hear the song, I think of the video. So that's probably my favorite track. 
the story behind the track itself? Uh, the story behind is that I told I told Keneally when I was going to work with him, I said, there's only one thing I request, and there's one thing I like better than writing songs, and it's naming songs. So I just want the right to be able to name um, every song. And, you know, he thinks I'm sick. I am disturbed. I probably do need therapy because you have songs like um, Donner Party Highlights, uh, Lucy Has the Grip of a Crop Duster, uh, National Milk Day. So, you know, I really spend, you could tell, a lot of time on these on these song titles. So, uh, you know, that's what I do, man. Yeah, and, and I must admit, I can't remember any songs like that appearing in the charts. So for differentiation, you're definitely going to stand out. Um, but, but, but I will, all jokes aside, the music itself does stand out as well. And I know what you mean by the video. I mean, over the years I've known you, when you've done the odd videos, the stuff I remember you did with Minimum, that you, you do this quick shot, changing of shots and very sort of staccato almost in how you're doing it. Is that you producing the video as well? Yeah, that's me producing the editing. And I had a partner, um, Edward Aish, who I met in New Zealand. We did a lot of them, but then I kind of looked over his shoulder and learned how to do it. And so now I'm on my own doing the same style. But yeah, it's like, it's Lazy Bones has this for better or worse. Maybe many people might think it's for worse. I've developed this, this Lazy Bones kind of style with our music and videos. And, you know, it's worked for us. So I'd kind of stick with it. And, and so our videos do kind of have that, like you said, that quick chop, quick cuts, a lot of movement. It goes with the music as well. I mean, you know, in the minimum days, you know, he is a very sort of physical, let's put it that way, a physical person. Um, Keneally, I don't, do not know. He's a few, got a few more years on him, so he probably isn't moving as fast as Marco does. But at the same time, um, the way those fingers move. <laughs> Coming to an end on this particular show with you, to me, as I listened to your story, you had this vision. You wanted to do it. You knew what you didn't want. And just as importantly, you knew what you wanted. You visualized working with people. And somehow you bent the universe around you to, to, to do what you wanted to do. And you eschewed, you know, everybody hells, hangs, you know, goes to New York, goes to LA, goes to London. And you've and you just gone, now. Nah, no, don't need to do that. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. Would that be a summary? Is there anything else? I mean, apart from probably a massive work ethic as well, I'm going to guess, because this stuff is not easy. It just looks easy. You, you, you really, John, and you know this being the success that you are, is you really have to believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing and, and look at it unbiasedly and be able to say, you know, I think I'm pretty good at whatever it is that you're good at. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And this business is brutal. And so you really have to believe in yourself. And if you don't, you're not going to, you have no chance of making it. So it's just this knowing that, you know, ever since I was a kid, I've had melodies in my head. I don't know where they come from. I've understood songwriting. I've understood song structure. And I've known how to relate to artists. And so it's just believing in yourself, man, and, and doing things differently. I've always done things differently. Um, not on purpose, just that's just how I, I've been wired. I've made a ton of mistakes and I will always make mistakes. But at the end of the day, I kind of know that whatever, whatever I do musically, whenever I put out a record, people say, oh, it's I'm going to listen to this. It's going to be something special because I don't do many a year. I might do two or three records a year. 
So when I put out something, people know the care that I take. They know the passion. They know it's going to be good. I'm not going to send somebody 30 records and say, pick your favorite. The other ones I don't care about. That's, that's the world of major labels. And I just uh, have no interest in that. So that's, it's just about believing in what you're doing and working with the right people. And boy, have you done that in spades. So passion and purpose all rolled up into one. Absolutely stupendous. So, Scott, I want to thank you very, very much for being on the show today. I, I, again, this is a People First show. We've dis- disappeared into music a lot more deeply than I would normally would, but that is your world. But why I wanted to get out from you is how you can live in this world of everything that's going on and wrong with it, following a dream, following a passion, and succeeding at it, which is what you're doing, producing albums at it, working with people, producing stuff. So uh, kudos to you on that. It, it, it's it's stunning. Your work is great and uh, always been a fan. Thank you, Joe, so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your kind words and your support throughout the years. I really do appreciate it. Until the next time, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, John. A regular listener will know that at this point, the People First outro kicks in, and you probably just switch off and walk away. This is different. Stop. There's more. We promised you an Easter egg. Sit back and take in the first track of the second album of MFTP. It's called What Wally Thinks, and it features Scott Shaw on drums and Mike Keneally on guitar. There's also rather a different video that Scott created that goes with the track. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, and finally, to clarify something I said in the conversation with Scott, stunt guitarist. Mike was known as Frank Zappa's stunt guitarist. Do you need any more credentials? 